Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, August 7th, 2018, starting at 1.42 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 167th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Adam Ellenboss about the issue of twins in astrology. Uh, hey, Adam, thanks for joining me for this. Hey, Chris, good to be here. All right, so this is a big topic. I've been meaning to do this topic for quite a while now, for for years, actually, but I keep putting it off and putting it off, and so I'm glad we're actually finally doing it today. So thanks for getting together with me for this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is something I actually asked you a few days ago if you'd done anything on this, and this was something that you'd done some work on recently and in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I get asked all the time, and it was refreshed in my memory recently because... I had a new client come in who at the very beginning said, I'm skeptical of astrology because I'm a twin and my twin is very different from me. And then I, not long after that, I actually on my birthday, I went to see last month, I went to see a film about um, triplets that were reunited, which is sort of a popular film that's out right now. So the topic was actually really fresh on my mind recently. Okay, cool. So in order to sort of frame it, I mean, this is the issue of twins is one of the most common and long-standing critiques of astrology, and there's been variations of of this criticism. It's partially a criticism that skeptics have used to attack astrology, but it's also kind of like a natural question that arises from the concept of natal astrology. And there's been different variations of the both the question and the criticism for about two thousand years now. So in this episode, I wanted to address uh, some philosophical sort of answers to the question, some conceptual answers, and some technical points that are important to take into account when astrologers are discussing and trying to, you know, respond to questions or criticisms surrounding this this basic issue. So, first, why don't we start by defining the basic parameters of the twins criticism? So the starting point is that um, natal astrology hasn't always been around, but it was actually introduced at some specific point and the first evidence of it that we find shows up in Mesopotamia somewhere around the 5th century BCE. So about, about 2,500 years ago or so, natal astrology starts being practiced. And the basic premise of natal astrology, of course, is that the alignment of the planets at the moment that a person is born indicates or has something to say about their future, about their character, about the course of their life, and to some extent, perhaps their destiny. So that basic premise of natal astrology naturally raises the question of what about people born at the same time? So there, there's two categories. There's twins who are born close together from the same parents or the same mother. And then there's another category that's sometimes referred to as time twins, which are people who are born to separate parents, but around the same time so that they have roughly the same birth chart. So those are the the two sort of issues that we're going to look into to, today, and that's the basic framing of the of the problem. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, I think it's one of those gotchas that people try to you know pull off, um, out of the hat, you know, to to uh, criticize or attack astrology with. It's it's one of a number of them, but I think it's definitely one of the. Um, it's it's something that I think you run into as a student of astrology very early on. You wonder it yourself, and then you are used to hearing that retort from you know maybe relatives or friends who are skeptical or whatever. At some point, someone says, well, "What about twins?" Mm -hmm. 
Right. Well, and, and also in its most extreme form, it's usually presented by skeptics as the more blanket rejection of like sun sign astrology, where they they formulate the the critique and say, you know, what's the likelihood that that you know different people that are born under the same sun sign are all having the same day based on their horoscope column or what have you? And sometimes it gets sort of filtered down in that way or simplified in that way. That's another variation of the same criticism. Yeah, right. Yeah, you definitely see it. You you see the twins argument as one of the um, you know, one of the the leading weapons in the um criticism of astrology in general for sure. Yeah. Sure. So so part of it then comes down to uh like a fundamental misunderstanding or or lack of understanding of astrology and what it's about and what its assumptions are. And that's certainly a big part of it and that's, you know, obviously with something like the sun sign criticism is even more evident there, although it's still evident when they're criticizing natal astrology that they don't quite fully understand how astrologers are approaching the subject. Um, but then there's a separate side to this, which is that there's something about this issue that's actually useful for astrologers in terms of forcing them to think more deeply about and come to a, a better understanding of what astrology is and how it operates by really focusing in on this question and coming to grips with the issue. Um, and and sort of wrestling with it in a way that produces something that's that's productive. Yeah, I mean, in preparation for our discussion today, I decided to uh, reach out to one of my clients who is a twin and asked her if she could take some time to speak with me. And we took like an hour and a half and talked about major transits in her chart and everything. And so I think you're, and, and I learned a lot, and it illuminated for even though I, I had ready made sort of intellectual responses that I've learned over time and that I think my practice has demonstrated just refreshing on the chart of a twin prior to doing this today was really helpful and I think you're so I think you're right that it helps us considering this issue helps us dig in a little deeper as astrologers for sure definitely all right so I wanted to so I, w- I wanted to first set a little bit more historical context because I said that this has been one of them, um, it's been a longstanding critique of natal astrology for the past 2000 years. And that's actually true because we can trace back the earliest surviving criticism where the twins argument was brought up was actually by Cicero in the first century BCE, who was one of the earliest, he, he wrote one of the earliest sort of skeptical attacks on astrology around the first century, right about the time that Hellenistic astrology was really starting to be- become popular. So um, I have a quote from Cicero where he says, <clears throat> he says, the fact that men who were born at the very same instant are unlike in character, career, and in destiny makes it very clear that the time of birth has nothing to do in determining man's course in life. So it's a pretty clear sort of statement that even though twin, let's say twins born to the same mother might look alike, they end up having very different lives or different characters or different careers or destinies or what have you. There were other skeptical sort of critiques of astrology after that point, like by St. Augustine, who went into the twins' criticism with a little bit more detail. But it's usually basically just different variations of the same fundamental argument or objection. Right. So um, that's one part of the historical context. And then, of course, astrologers have occasionally tried to respond to this. So Ptolemy is, he may have um, sort of adjusted or may have crafted part of the Tetrabiblos in the second century in response to some of those early criticisms. 
either in order to counter them or in order to better articulate what astrologers were actually doing in a way that partially uh, responded to or nullified some of those criticisms. And part of his response already in the second century is that astrology is not the only determining factor in terms of things like a person's career or destiny or what have you, but that you also had to take into account other factors in order to understand the actual context of the chart before making any predictions. So things like uh, gender, uh, the geographical area, the cultural norms of the place where the person is living or is born into, uh, whether it's you know the chart of a human versus the birth chart of you know a turtle or something like that, um, and other things that are supposed to be giving actual context to the birth chart itself. So it basically tries to counter the criticism by saying that part of the answer is that that astrologers are not supposed to make their statements without any context whatsoever, but in fact, the context needs to be taken into account as part of doing astrology. Yeah, I I think of the fact that astrology has its its roots in different forms of astral omen divination and that there are there's within many different divinatory practices even though it's debatable as to obviously whether or not astrology is a form of divination but it has enough in common with the history of divination that I don't think it's a leap to point out um that divination requires context so if you go to an oracle, you have a question that the same uh, dice or runes or bones or liver entrails or stars or whatever you're uh, reading and whatever may be offering some prognostication is offering it within the context. It, it The symbols make sense within the context or shape of a unique situation or, or inquiry. And so that that it's not it's there's an interaction between the objective and the subjective i think that's a part of astrology in a similar way that you know you can't just throw a spread of tarot cards without a person or a question in front of you and think that well it's just objectively describe reality it's it's a little bit more interactive than that i guess that's the way that i would think about it yeah well and even in a causal context because ptolemy was writing it his treatise from the perspective of astrology and planets and stars causing things to happen through right. some sort of celestial influence. He said that uh, the planets and the stars are not the only causes, but there's other causes and other factors in a person's life, other causal factors that have to be taken into account. So, you know, even right. from that perspective. Yeah, I think it's. Um, it's also it feeds into the debate that was in existence in the ancient world about fate and free will to a certain extent too because you're you're assuming um that the chart tells you something about perhaps about the person's destiny um but i think you know many astrologers even in the you know early hellenistic period of astrology assumed that there was some element of free will interacting um and not only our free will but the free will of you know other agents in our environment or our, our lives our parents so so I I think if you're someone who, unless you take a really hardcore deterministic standpoint um, as an astrologer, then I would imagine that some you know some interaction of free will. Um, th- there are other influences, there are other causal influences in our our life other than just the. Even if you take astrology as a causal sort of science, and even the cause of the celestial causes aren't the only ones. I think that's uh, really important. Yeah, sure. Um. 
So, and, and evidently, even really early on in the first few centuries, there were already astrologers responding to these criticisms. And um, St. Augustine actually cites very dismissively and very briefly um, an earlier astrologer named Nigidius Figulus, who's said to have responded to the potter, uh, responded with something called the potter's wheel analogy. And the the point that he basically ends up making is that sometimes even what seems like a small change in time, like a few minutes or yeah, let's say a few minutes, can be a major difference in terms of the astrological charts or in terms of a birth chart. So I actually want to read the passage. So this is from St. Augustine's uh, City of God. Um, and who's the translator? I'm not sure who the translator is, but it's the Penguin Classics version. So it's just a quick paragraph. So let me read it really quickly. So Augustine, and this is like in the middle of his disputation of his attack on astrology, he says, and he's a little bit sarcastic, so it's actually kind of funny. But he says, nothing is to be gained by bringing in the well-known parable of the potter's wheel given by Nigidius in reply to this problem, which greatly troubled him, a parable that gave him his nickname Figulus, which means the potter. So his, his name is actually Nigidius, but his like nickname became the potter because of this sort of analogy that he used in order to counter the twins' criticism. So Augustine, he says, Nigidius revolved a potter's wheel with all of the vigor he could command, and while it was spinning, he made two very rapid strokes on the wheel with ink, apparently on the same spot. But when the wheel stopped, those marks were found to be a considerable distance apart on the edge of it. In the same way, said Nigidius, the sky whirls around so swiftly that although twins may be born in as quick succession as my two strokes of the wheel, that corresponds to a very large tract of the sky. This would account for all the great divergences alleged in the character of twins and in the events in their lives. And then Augustine, he says, like really sarcastically, he says, this parable is even more fragile than the pottery made on that wheel. <laughs> um, and he, he goes on, he starts criticizing, his criticism ends up being uh, the inability of like astrologers in that time to observe the sky so carefully that they could even make such minute distinctions, which at this point, 2000 years later, is a completely uh, moot point because we can actually calculate um, astrological charts with great precision at this point in time. Right. So that was some of the early banter. This is like 2000 years ago in the early, in the, during the course of the Roman Empire. And Cicero and I think Nigidius Figulus were around the first century BCE. Augustine was a few centuries later. So this is going back and forth. But this just shows you that this is one of the early things that was being debated very early on. And sometimes there were attacks from skeptics and sometimes the astrologers would respond. <laughs> Poor astrologers were getting we're getting picked on um to you know for thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. Getting made fun of and <laughs> well, and I want to do an episode one of these days on different skeptical attacks on astrology. Because one of the things that's funny about that is Cicero, of course, was attacking it from more of the philosophical standpoint. And Augustine was attacking it from more of a Christian standpoint. And the and the actual tract that Augustine ends up taking against astrology is he ends up saying that it works, but it's it's the work of evil spirits. So versus Cicero, who just says it doesn't it doesn't work at all and it doesn't make any sense at all. So it's always interesting seeing the angle that skeptics take when they are attacking astrology, depending on their own sort of philosophical and religious inclinations. Right. 
Yeah, and it's funny how many throughout the history of Christianity, in particular, how many um, uh, closet and and even not so closet astrologers there's there have been. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons you see so much resistance from the Catholic Church, for example, throughout the history of um, uh, Western astrology is because their their own clergy are, are practicing it, and they're in some ways trying to weed it out from the uh, the institution. <laughs> so. Right, that's a point that Nick Campion always made or, or makes in his writings, which is that you can see when astrology is actually the most popular when you see the most frequent um, bans being issued by either religious or you know political authorities against it because bans against the against astrology that are trying to get rid of it wouldn't be happening unless people were actually trying to practice it right so anyway um so that brings us to the getting into the technical part of this discussion so first it's important to discern whether the chart really is exactly the same or not uh, as the very first thing so sometimes you know, you can have twins, but the twins can be born, you know, 10 minutes apart or 15 or 20 or 30 minutes apart or more. And that does make a major difference so that even two, two people born close together in time may not have exactly the same chart. And first establishing that scenario where you have two people with very similar charts, but where there are some uh, notable uh, differences and then the other scenario of two people with actually the exact same chart, and then how to deal with that. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh, the two. I I spoke yesterday to my wife's cousin, um, who is a twin, and um, uh, just you know asked him just curiosity how far apart were you, and I was asking him a bunch of questions, but asked him how far apart they were born. And he said half an hour. And I was really surprised because I'm used to like, you know, two minutes or so, you know, it's always, I'm used to hearing that, but actually in their case, it was um, 30, 30 minutes apart. So now he didn't have his exact birth time available to me. I was just reaching out to him on Facebook, but, um, but I'm assuming that, you know, there are enough twins out there that are also farther distances apart that it could it could very easily 30 minutes could affect your uh, proximity of planets and in, in or near proximity of planets to the ascending degree or to other critical degrees in the chart the, the bound lord like all sorts of stuff could change very easily in 30 minutes what to speak of even five to ten minutes things can change so yeah i even and i was talking to lisa shime about this last night and she found a, a really interesting instance where there were twins but something happened and one of them was born prematurely but then the other one wasn't born until two months later so there's actually like really funny bizarre oh, wow. stories yeah. which obviously are not are not common but um sometimes you know we can't always make the assumption that it's it's always like a fixed interval in which the twins will be born yeah, that's right. And I'll 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 save some of my stories for to get a little bit farther into talking about the different kinds of technical things that can shift, but there was a, a very basic example in the uh woman's chart that I spoke with yesterday um where her and her twin sister were born like 9-10 minutes apart and it changes the bound ruler uh or the term ruler of the ascendant um, from Venus to Mars. And uh, that seemed to make a, a very significant difference in terms of their 
personalities and they're they're so that was something that I was shocked to find um when I spoke to her yesterday and it kind of was like um instantly fit in with some of the basic uh personality differences between them. Sure. Yeah, well let's get into some of those technical things now. Okay, so this is going to begin a section on um technical answers to this issue based on chart changes. So this is kind of an a sort of outline that I've crafted about how astrologers respond to this or how I would respond to this or what trying to articulate what some of the actual technical differences are that can change um, between charts in a relatively short span of time. So the first section to deal with is that sometimes a few minute time difference can lead to major differences in chart placements. So I wanted to review some some instances or some possible scenarios where even just a few minute difference, let's say five minute difference, ten minute difference, or what what have you, anywhere give or take within that range, can lead to like a major shift in the chart that would lead to astrologers to interpret the chart in a way that could be significantly different. So one of those things, one of the most common things, of course, and probably one of the things that somebody like Nigidius Figulus had in mind with the Potter analogy. Is that the ascendant um, moves re- relatively rapidly through the degrees of the zodiacal signs, and sometimes over a few minute uh, time span, the ascendant can actually change signs. So the ascendant could be in. I've seen charts where uh, there were twins, and one of the twins was born with like twenty nine Scorpio rising, and the other twin was born with like two degrees of Sagittarius rising, for example. So you have the ascendant actually changing signs, and then the, this, of course, changes the overall ruler of the ascendant, the planet that rules the rising sign, which is an, a very important planet in most traditions of astrology. And in modern astrology, it's often treated as the overall ruler of the chart. But this can also, in some systems, it can change uh, all of the houses. So for example, in whole sign houses or in equal houses, that changes all of the houses and changes all of the rulers of the cusps of each of those houses so that the ascendant changing signs can actually be a really radically different or or interpreted as a radically different chart um, from one just one difference of like a few minutes right so that's a pretty you know common or major one where i think most astrologers would immediately think about that maybe as the biggest potential change or most dramatic change that you could see hypothetically, even if you you otherwise wouldn't expect it to be that common, right? Right. Yeah. If you have a totally different distribution of whole sign houses or equal houses for sure, um, then your rulers of the places and hence rulers of the topics are distributed differently. Their accidental dignity all shifts dramatically, potentially. Um, and the, that alone would be probably the, the simplest explanation of how a chart can be night and day. I mean, just totally different, um, from one, you know, spot to another. So yeah, that would be a big one. And even if you're using a quadrant based system, um, you know, a quadrant based cusps could also change the rulers of, of houses pretty, um, you know, uh, dramatically, depending on a couple of minutes, depending on where certain house cusps are falling and things like that. Right. So, like a, that would take us to another example where, for example, the degree of the midheaven, which in quadrant houses like Placidus is the starting point or the cusp of the 10th house, 
um, also moves rapidly through the degrees of the zodi- zodiacal signs. So the midheaven could actually change signs as well over the course of a few minute ta- time span, and that would shift um, shift it so that the ruler of that house would move from being like one planet, like let's say Mars, to another planet like Jupiter if it moved from let's say late Scorpio to early Sagittarius, which then would cause a completely different interpretation of how you would deal with or how astrologers would interpret that house and the corresponding um, things like the person's career and reputation and other things associated with that sector of the chart. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's uh, obviously, and and I've I've also noticed that um, your you know if you have a planet that's in proximity to a, uh, I mean, I'll t- I'll talk more about this. Well, this is a good moment. Like in the example that I did with this um, young woman, her sister's ascendant bumps to uh a degree it, it becomes it was if i remember correctly uh let me just look at the chart really quick i have it right here so her ascendant switched so that um so she was nine cancer uh rising and when you uh switch for the time change for her sister uh jupiter is at 29 gemini and the ascendant becomes much much closer to jupiter in gemini um, which actually also plays a role in the formation of character when a planet is more closely um, conjoined with the ascending degree, even if it's out of sign. So in the, in that case, like her sister had more of those Jupiter and Gemini traits, which some astrologers may interpret as significant because it came to within a much closer degree-based range with the other sister's ascendant. So again, even though it was out of sign, the the ascendant moving could become came in close proximity with the planet in the twelfth. So you know that was a, a really great example of also how their characteristics of personality were just very different from one another. Sure. So I'll add that one to the outline just below this. So it's like ascendant changing, midheaven changing, planets becoming more or less angular. So move, moving over like a. a you know, five or ten or fifteen or especially like thirty minute time span, some planets could move more towards the ascendant degree or more towards the midheaven degree or the descendant or IC, and therefore become more prominent in the chart and and prominent in the person's life or in the person's character or or whatever that part of the chart is associated with. Versus, there's other planets that could move away from the degrees of the angles and therefore become less prominent or less active in the life. Yeah, that's exactly right. Once we go over a few more, I'll I'll tell a more full anecdote about this this chart. But yeah, that's that's what I observed. Yep. Okay. Um, another major thing that I just added that you reminded me of when you used some phrase just a few minutes ago, but is a sect, and that the sect of a chart can actually change if there's if the sun either rises and it becomes daytime in between the time that two people are born. Or if the sun sets and it becomes nighttime, the difference between a day and night chart is a major principle, interpretive principle in ancient astrology, and it changes how, um, especially how the benefics and malefics are interpreted in the chart, and can be used sometimes to identify the most positive or the most challenging areas of the chart. So um, that can be another major change that can occur in a relatively small. Uh, span of time that can completely alter the interpretation of the chart? Yeah, I think about it like, so I practice yoga every morning. So I get up and it's dark out, right? It's like clearly 
dark at let's say like 5 30 but within 30 minutes and it, as of like i said that my uh, wife's cousins were born 30 minutes apart as twins within 30 minutes it's clearly light out you know what i mean there's a shift that happens pretty rapidly and so i think you could easily say that the sect status of a chart changes even though you know the sun might be barely peeking into the first house or might be you know not quite to the ascendant yet in in one chart and then on the other twins chart maybe even the same rising sign is there but the sun is uh clearly with the ascendant and it's light out my experience with getting up early in the morning for a long time now has been that um the way that i look at sect is to really i'm pretty um careful about it now i'm pretty like if it's if it's within you know a certain number of degrees to the ascendant i kind of calculate that in terms of how many minutes etc and if i ever get into the situation where i'm really trying to you know split hairs about it i'll actually look and figure out when did the sunrise that day how many minutes away from it was was it because i have a really good sense from getting up all the time early in the morning as to whether it was dark or not and that's kind of how i make the distinction myself when i had it doesn't come up that often in my practice but when it does that's how i think about it yeah and there definitely is some ambiguity surrounding that but there's certainly you know especially between like one hour and the next let's say if you're just standing outside you can tell the difference between you know it's daylight out and the sun is still above the horizon versus the sun has set and it's completely dark out at this point Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's definitely when you're getting into a range of like 30 minutes, it's a, yeah, it's a little bit more ambiguous, but I, I mean, for me, like stark difference between five thirty and six in terms of what it looks like outside, like it'll be, there'll be light everywhere at six. Whereas right now for me anyway, whereas when I'm meditating at five fifteen or five thirty, it's still dark out. So. Sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's a major thing that can change. Um, another major thing that can change is that the moon can change signs. So the moon moves of all of the celestial, actual celestial bodies that astrologers work with are quote-unquote planets, um, since astrologers use the term planets to refer to a lot of things, including satellites like the, the Earth's moon. Um, the moon, because it moves so rapidly, can actually change signs. So if you have one person born with the moon at like 29 degrees of Taurus, the other person might have it, if they're born a little bit later, could have it at like zero degrees of Gemini. So that would be a major interpretive difference as well. Right. Yeah. In the um in the uh case of the two that I looked at yesterday, their their moons were like squarely in the middle of the uh signs, both the 30 minutes apart and um and the about 10 minutes apart difference. It didn't make a huge impact on the moon. But I, I did think of that. I was like, you know, this if you have the moon's late. You could certainly have a change. Yeah, and I've I've definitely seen charts like that. I remember um Obama's chart actually was like that because before his birth time was released, there was a lot of speculation. And I remember back around like early 2008 when the primaries for the 2008 election were still going on, a lot of people were talking about it and having debates. And I remember one astrologer trying to argue that he had a Taurus moon, and I was like, no, that that doesn't sound right. Like I'm pretty sure it's in Gemini because one of the things he was most noted for was just his his oratory and his his way with words and ability to give speeches and stuff and then a few months later the official birth certificate was released and the the time was later in the day he was born around sunset and so the moon did end up being in Gemini 
So that's an example of somebody where there could have been somebody else who was born the same day, who has the same chart as Barack Obama, but if they were born earlier in the day, their moon would be in Taurus rather than in Gemini, which would shift some major parts or major interpretive pieces of the chart. And just to um, clarify, I think the most important criticism would not be so much on the same day because for astrologers anyway, someone might level that criticism, but for astrologers, that's an easy fix because if you're born in one part of the world versus another, the charts are totally different. It's more if they're in the exact same location and the same you know date and year and so forth and then even from there it would have to be this criticism only really works when it's within maybe an hour a couple of hours at most the charts have to look in this for this criticism to work they have to look very very similar yeah and, and we'll definitely get there but i just want i think it's still worth actually articulating because some people some skeptics or some people who are just getting into astrology might not understand if you don't know astrology very well you only know sun sign astrology you might think even the criticism of two people born on the same day, according to astrology, should have the same character, the same lives. So one of the oh, things we're yeah. doing is just sort of painstakingly going through all of the reasons why that would not necessarily be the case, or for somebody who's completely unfamiliar with birth charts, you know, what does change over the course of even a day yeah, or over very, Yeah, right. So yeah, if you're if you're coming at this from just the, the sort of perspective of sun sign astrology, there's just an, a huge abundance of these things that change, right? Sure. So one last thing that one one last major change that I came up with that does happen that would be a major change interpretively or could be a major interpretive change is that some aspects between planets could perfect and thus move from applying aspects to separating aspects, uh, which would be a major difference. Applying and separating tends to be used more commonly or more frequently in horary astrology and electional astrology, but it's also still relevant in natal astrology. Right. So um, I'm thinking of uh, um, there's um, uh, if you guys, if, if people who are listening to this know um, Nina Griffin, she has these wonderful illustrations that she does of different astrological texts and sort of doctrines or teachings from ancient astrologers and so forth. And there's something from Bonatti that she did an illustration of recently that I thought was really clever. And anyway, it was the, the basic idea of the rule from Bonatti was, you know, um, if the if the planets have separated by even one minute, some harm that you are let's say with a malefic, a, a difficult planet, and the, some planet has separated from malefic by even one minute, the, the feared result uh, won't occur. But you know, you'll, you'll by the, sort of by the skin of your teeth, you'll come out okay. Uh, whereas if it's applying and hasn't perfected, even you know to one minute, it, it still has to perfect. Uh, you can be sure that the, the, the challenging thing will occur. And so the and she had some really cute drawing that she did with it. But anyway, I just saw that recently, and that's certainly true in horary, where and an applying. If someone's asking about, will we get back together? Uh, most horary astrologers, if they saw the planets that represented two lovers coming together, but yet to perfect their aspect, it would be an indication that you know there's an opportunity for reuniting or getting back together or coming together whereas if they're separating even by a couple of minutes you know most horary astrologers will say no the opportunity has passed by and i think in natal astrology even though those are they like bonatti's also writing about horary in a lot of cases but you can apply uh, many astrologers over time have applied the same basic ideas to interpreting natal aspects 
Yeah, definitely. Just through the, the premise that applying aspects indicate the future and separating aspects indicate the past, which is much more easy to articulate in horary or intellectual, but in a natal context, it just means that applying aspects largely are going to be something that develops in the life eventually at some point, whereas separating aspects might indicate something that you already have or you've already come into the life with in some instances. Right. So I actually interviewed Nina about her illustrations and her work on Bonatti's considerations in episode 108, so people can go back into the episode archives to, to listen to that if they want. They're, they're wonderful. They're really cool. Yeah. I love her, uh, the Patreon that she does for that. So, all right. So let's see, moving on. One last thing that's like, like a sub note to that that's connected with application and separation is that sometimes this can make a major difference. Um, well, it can obviously make a major difference to something just as simple as like one person could be born with the moon, for example, which moves relatively fat, uh, rapidly applying to a easy aspect like a trine with a benefic but like 10 or 15 minutes later that aspect could be, could be completed and could be separating and now the moon could be applying to let's say a difficult aspect like an opposition with a malefic like mars or saturn and that's going to make a major difference a major interpretive difference between those two charts um more in a more complex fashion or a more complex version of that is that sometimes um because applications and separations can begin or end, you can have an enclosure of a planet that either begins or ends from one five or 10 minute time span to another. So the moon could, in one person's chart, it could be sandwiched in between, let's say, a conjunction between Mars and Saturn who are in the same sign, and the moon could be separating from a conjunction with one and applying to a conjunction with another so that it's sort of stuck between them, which is viewed as a very difficult combination to have whereas um, 10 or 15 minutes later that per- that person could be born with the moon having moved outside of that conjunction with those two planets and therefore separating from it and not necessarily in an enclosure or in, in as bad of a state i think it's called besiegement in medieval astrology yeah i actually have a good story about that from from my horary practice so i was a year or two ago no it was a couple of years ago um a, a woman that I met with my wife while we were on honeymoon, she was there with her husband. And so we were hanging out with other newlyweds and we became friends with them. And then later on, she sent me a horary question because her, um, a relative of hers went, went missing and they were, they were, um, sort of, uh, suicidal when they went missing and the question was, you know, w- will she be okay? You know, has she taken her life? Kind of, will she come back? And uh, the moon represented this family member in this horary. And it had literally within minutes just been free of a malefic enclosure, um, degree-based, and was then applying to like a trine with the sun or something like that. Mm. And um, and that offered testimony to what had actually happened, which was that um, she had just had a, a really close encounter with trying to take her own life, but was um, uh, was averted by the intervention of a friend, and then the authorities came in and what have you. So, but I mean, it's just that in that case, the separating aspect within minutes literally painted the picture of like a, a life or death situation that uh, was very close to going in a totally different direction. And the astrology reflected that by the separation of the aspect within such a, a very short amount of minutes. 
Right. And and that's becomes relevant in, in natal astrology as well for not just, you know, one event, but sometimes it's like a recurring theme in the person's life. Um right. so so a major a change like that can be a, a huge deal. Right, right. All right. So that's that's sort of my my checklist for, you know, a few minute time difference leading to a major interpretive difference in a person's chart. Um, but now I have a separate section I wanted to talk about, which is sometimes only small changes in the chart, things that are, let's say, from an interpretive standpoint, you might paint as potentially being less important or less major in terms of the hierarchy of interpretive principles that Western astrologers apply to charts. What are some small changes that happen in a few minute time span? So one of those that we we already touched upon is that the ascendant, the midheaven, and the other angles change relatively quickly. But another, and and in some instances, those are not going to change signs. So if the ascendant and midheaven and other angles are not close to sign boundaries, they're not necessarily going to change signs, but they might change and move a few degrees over the course of a few minutes, which may or may not have some slight indicate some slight difference based on some of the things we were talking about earlier, like planets getting closer to angles or further away from angles and therefore becoming more or less prominent. Another thing that can change sometimes is the lots or the Arabic parts, which in modern astrology are typically relegated to somewhat reduced status as like sort of minor factors, but in ancient astrology were treated were a little bit higher in terms of their priority or their interpretive priority. And the lots or the Arabic parts do change degrees relatively rapidly, just about as quick as the ascendant and midheaven do, and can change signs over the course of a few minutes. So that's not as important as like a planet changing signs, but certainly having like the lot of fortune or the lot of spirit changing signs can make a significant difference in terms of interpretations, right? Well, yeah, and the thing that I'm thinking of, and I, I think I might be um, anticipating where you're going to, is um, that if your if fortune or spirit change signs, one of some of the major timing techniques in Hellenistic astrology, like zodiacal releasing, could instantly be um, changed, and and obviously that could be quite dramatic if if a lot is changing signs, so that the timing of really critical uh, moments of uh, career accomplishment or busy periods in your life or times that are difficult for health or times where you're totally taking a 180 somehow in your career. All of those different kinds of periods would change really dramatically if a, a, a lot or a part uh, change signs. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get to timing techniques in just a minute here. But, but yeah, even- Sorry, I thought I was probably anticipating you there. <laughs> right. But I mean, even just in terms of interpretive principles, like doing- Ancient astrologers like Vadius Valens talks a lot about doing derived houses from the lot of fortune, so that you find what sign the lot of fortune is in, and then that sign, the entire sign becomes the first house, the sign after that becomes the second house, and so on and so forth. And sometimes within the context of certain techniques, you treat those houses as more important than the natal houses. Um, so he did that, for example, when he was studying like the manner in which a native would die if they had like a violent death, he would always look at the eighth house relative to fortune rather than the eighth house from the ascendant as being more relevant within the context of that specific study. So sometimes um, the lot of fortune or other lots changing signs can can make a major interpretive difference, um, even though right. it happens relatively frequently. This is also the point where 
subdivisions of, of zodiacal signs become really relevant. And this is where we have to start talking a little bit about things like subdivision charts and harmonics, because there's lots of different um, – in Western astrology, there's a few standard subdivisions that have been used. And then in other traditions, like in Indian astrology, they use uh, subdivisions and subdivision charts much more regularly, and it's a much more crucial sort of interpretive tool. But even in the in the Western tradition, traditionally, there's certain subdivisions that have been used um, where you divide up the, each of the zodiacal signs into portions that are supposed to have different qualities so that it's not just that astrologers assume that an entire zodiacal sign from the very beginning of that sign to the very end of that sign has the same qualities, but instead sometimes there are thought to be interpretive differences between certain parts of the sign compared to others. So one of the standard divisions is the decans, where you divide the signs into three portions, and each third, each 10-degree section has uh, different qualities associated with it. Right. And I, I'm thinking one of the reasons that's so prevalent in um, Vedic astrology or Indian astrology is um, uh, because Vedic cosmology, actually not totally different from Western cosmologies, is more of a closed and hierarchical system. So it's sort of you have um, the idea of, um, you know, uh, like nesting dolls with, you know, uh, the structure of the universe. And so the... Um, the uh, the idea of parts within parts within parts that's so common in like uh, Sankhya philosophy that comes from India and um, yeah Vedic cosmology and and I think it was there was a lot of I think there was a lot of exchange of similar ideas in um, philosophy and cosmology at the time where the the subdivisions being seen as um, sort of minor. Uh, minor parts of a of a of a of a whole but also given real significance so there's not it's not just well they're I mean we might think of them as as minor but i think there's something more of um a bit more of a holographic way of thinking about it that's present at least i know for sure in in um, vedic cosmology and um philosophy so you know the certainly the relevance of the minor portions they aren't really minor as far as i've understood it in the way that Vedic astrologers think about, um, or Indian astrologers think about those things. Right. Well, and even in Western astrology, I mean, when you read Firmicus Maternus and he starts talking about the 12th parts, he really goes over the top and talking about like, this is the secret hidden part of the chart. This is one of the most crucial things that you must pay attention to and that your predictions will fail if you're not paying attention to the differences between the 12th parts. I mean, I should almost pull that out and read a passage because he's like really over the top about how important and how crucial this is as an interpretive factor where the the 12th parts um which in modern times are often referred to with the the vedic name the dwadashamshas or the dwads divides each of the zodiacal signs into 12 smaller portions which are then each assigned to one of the zodiacal signs for like two and a half degrees each right and and of course the subperiods within zodiacal releasing, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute, but it's a similar idea, which is that you know you you can say something very specific in many cases by going into subperiods. It's not necessarily that they're you know that you may get a lot of information from major periods, but any subperiods may also give you very specific timed information that's also very relevant. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's probably an important point we should get to eventually when you get into the philosophical and conceptual section, which is there are literally like innumerable or just like millions of variables that astrologers could take into account. And oftentimes the astrologers don't take those into account and just physically can't. Like we, we, lack the ability to take into account all of the major variables that could be taken into account, but that doesn't mean that they're not necessarily there or they're not necessarily operative on some level. And they become relevant in instances like this where we're talking about minute differences and whether two charts really are identically the same or whether there are significant differences that are actually there if you really wanted to to push the point. Right. So, you know, 12th parts is a major one because if with the 12th parts you have different within a zodiacal sign, there's other zodiacal signs. So, like, let's say the first two and a half degrees of the sign Aries are assigned to Aries, and the next two and a half degrees are assigned to Taurus, and the next two and a half degrees after that are assigned to Gemini. The ascendant changes every few minutes, and the degree of the quadrant midheaven or the meridian changes every few minutes. So it's going to move from one twelfth part to another twelfth part every few minutes, basically. So that's a a, a, a change, a, rel- a somewhat minor change, depending on how important the twelfth parts are. But it is a change that's occurring in the chart that's that's happening every few minutes that should be uh, changing the interpretation of the ascendant and the other angles. Right, right, and and there's also similar to the Potter's wheel um, analogy. There's also um, something to be said about small variations. Like if you plant two seeds in a garden, in the same soil right next to one another. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're for all intents and purposes, they're, they get the same attention, whatever. Um, you know, very slight changes in the environment or in the growth of the plants, um, can, by the time that the plants are full grown, make the plants look quite different, even though they also share some similarities, you know, some consistencies between the two of them. And that's something that I was talking to my wife about this, who's a gardener and an herbalist. And that was something that she brought up. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a great analogy. I love that. And connected with this, this is finally the point where one of the things you were saying earlier is, is relevant. Another subdivision that have been used traditionally in ancient astrology is the bounds or the the terms which are where you divide each of the zodiacal signs into five um, une- usually unequal portions, which are each assigned to one of the five traditional or visible planets. So um, what is it? It's like Mercury, uh, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Right. Yeah, this is uh, probably a good moment to share just a, the small anecdote. So the, with the twin I was speaking to, she said, one of the first things she said is, you know, I'm very different from my sibling. I'm generally have gotten, you know, I've, she's had more like temperamental, aggressive, assertive qualities and some interpersonal, maybe relationship struggles. And I've had, uh, I've been a little bit more introverted, but generally also I get along with people and easier and I'm more sort of um, like socially um, harmonious. And I just looked at the difference in their charts and the bound ruler of the ascendant, uh, which was, it was right on the cusp of the uh, first and um, 
oh, I have to look back at which particular bounds they were, but it was the cusp of the bound in ca- early Cancer, which was between Mars and Venus. And so it was uh, sibling number one who had the more um, aggressive, fiery Mar- Mars tendencies was um, ascendant ruler or ascend- ascendant bound lord was Mars, whereas the second sibling, uh, same ascendant in Cancer, um, 10 minutes later, or whatever, is uh, bound lord Venus. And then when you, com- you know, compared, uh, what I did was I, I looked at transits to natal Mars in their chart. So I said, okay, natal Mars in their second house and uh, in with the south node in uh, Leo. I, I did some transit work. And I said, what was happening for both of you at this time? Well, the similar theme of hard work in the career. So some challenges like Mars kind of being challenging, but related to trying to produce money and make things in the world in the second house was common for both of them during times when Mars was being aspected. But the difference was that um, basically for the girl, the sibling with uh, Mars as the bound Lord, those times also featured more interpersonal conflicts in her life than the other one. You know, just so that that added extra, that added element of Mars being more associated with her personality than the other sibling created totally different Mars transits in their lives, even though they still had some things in common, which were similar to Mars being in the second house. So that uh, was a really just beautiful example of the point that we're making here. Yeah. That, and that's really interesting to me. And I think that's what comes up. And, and frequently, this is the main thing that astrologers end up focusing on and looking to when it comes to the issue of twins, which is whether the ascendant changes and moves into a different zodiacal subdivision and what sort of interpretive differences that makes in the chart. Um, in your case with the bounds, that's really fascinating. because or One of the things I find fascinating about that is in, in ancient astrology, like going back to Antiochus and Porphyry, and for in some of the the earliest rules for calculating the overall ruler of the entire chart or what's called the master of the nativity one of the the approaches one of the two major approaches for doing that said that the master of the nativity is the bound lord or the planet that rules the terms that the ascendant is located in right so you know in your case that would be why there would be such a major distinction there between you know, Venus being so much more dominant in the chart versus Mars being more dominant in the chart because the ascendant is moving from the bounds of one planet to another. Right. Yeah. It was, um, I mean, it was fascinating. I mean, I went through a lot of conversation with her, but the one thing that was very consistent, the one consistent difference that she called on frequently were the difference in their personality and temperament types and the way that their destinies had major similarities, but were also, you know, very different. For example, um, with Mars in the second house as the bound lord of the um, more aggressive siblings uh, chart, uh, it was co-present with the sun in Leo. And she followed in the footsteps of her father, who was a sort of self-made entrepreneur with his own business. So Mars, sun in the second house, Hmm. she followed more in his footsteps. um, Whereas she with Venus in Virgo in the third followed more in the footsteps of her Virgo and mother who was interested in um, uh, different kinds of um, spiritual topics and um, kind of more of a a studious type of person with Venus and Virgo in the third. So it's just very interesting that the uh, sometimes, you know, the, the entire trajectory of, of the life could actually, you know, be there. Well, then I said to the sibling, I was trying to account for, 
the presence of Mars and the sun in the second house, I said, well, do you have any aspirations to have your own business, right? And she said, uh, yes, in fact, she's um, she's working on her own um, her own business right now as well. It's just, but what she's doing is um, working with people in a more caring, therapeutic environment, very Venetian. Because <laughs> her 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 sibling is in a much more Mars related industry where she's it's much more aggressive, cutthroat, uh, you know, and it's and it's actually much more clo- closer closely related to what her father does for a living. So it's just it was really fascinating to see that. Sure. I love that. Yeah. And that that's going to become really important. That's going to be tied in, especially with another section I want to get to in two more subsections about the division of the chart and this notion that's actually pretty common in modern astrology amongst the psychological astrologers that sometimes twins will will divide up the chart and appropriate certain feature of the, of the chart, but I, which is a, a sort of thing. But I think that might be tied back in with something that we're sort of getting to here about you know, depending on what subdivisions are activated, like each twin taking on or having certain parts of the chart emphasized as a result of that sort of technical for technical reasons. Right. Um. You know, even in the womb, twins often fight over resources that mm-hmm. are coming from the mother. There's definitely something about that that is there in the formation of their. You know, like Porphyry talks about. Um, the I'm, I'm trying to look at the insolment um he talks about the you know the formation of the of the soul kind of in the womb and the the, sh- the sh- formation of the ship of life and all of those things and you just think while the, the child the children are forming they're also often competing for resources and one twin can actually almost kill another twin in the womb sometimes too so wow okay well maybe that's worth i was going to save that as the last thing but well, actually, no, because we've got to talk about one more thing, subdivisions. So before we stop on subdivisions, one of the things I wanted to say is that so I've met we've mentioned and we sort of dwelled on a bit here the three historical subdivisions that Western astrologers have used, which are twelfth parts, bounds slash terms, and decans. But the Indians also use other subdivisions. The most important subdivision in the Indian tradition is the Navamshas, which divide the signs into nine portions. Um, but they also use a number of other subdivisions. They also use 12th parts and, and a bunch of others. And one of the things that's really unique and really cool about the Indian tradition that makes these subdivisions even more important is that they cast entirely separate charts for them. So they'll do, for example, like the 12th parts, they'll, they'll calculate the 12th parts and what 12th part, you know, each of the planets is located in, in its individual zodiacal sign. And then they'll figure out for example, what zodiacal sign, uh, what subdivision, what 12th part the ascendant is located in, and whatever zodiacal sign that is, that will become the rising sign for a new chart, for a subdivision chart that's just dedicated to the 12th parts. And then it'll put all they'll put all of the planets in their respective signs based on which 12th part they're in in the original chart, and then they'll interpret that new chart as a thing unto itself that has its own specific context and meaning depending on which 12th part is being used. Um, and there's some interesting things with that about different interpretive principles that like David Frawley talks about in his book, The Astrology of the Seers, where some, if I have this right, I'm not sure if I have this right, where some Indian astrologers interpret like the ninth part charts as indicating about the person's future and where they're going in the future whereas they interpret the 12th part chart as being about where the person is coming from in their past. 
which of course in an Indian or in a Hindu context ends up being about like past life versus future life versus the current chart, the birth chart itself, the base chart is about the present life. Um, but that has a lot of like very interesting um, implications and interesting meanings in terms of how they apply uh, the subdivisional charts. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are uh, even so. When we were my my wife just gave birth last week, and by the way, this is congratulations. Funny by the way, oh, thank you. <laughs> so, um, by the way, funny. Were you side there? Based with a side note, were you there with like a t- stopwatch, or how did you? Yeah, um, I had the doula tell me because I was, you know, obviously I was like kind of, you know, holding my wife's hand, so to speak, and, okay. and really kind of rooting her on through it. So I was just yeah, wondering, but, like, what astrologers are like when they're doing that. Yeah, the doula in both cases, our doula, which we had for the first birth too, she she was my, you know, clock person in the hospital. By the way, I'm convinced that the birth times are, if it's any version of what I had, the nurses were looking at the clock. Um, I asked them too, and I said, "How do you usually calculate it?" And they said, "Oh, you know, we'll we'll look at the clock, you know, within a few minutes afterward, and just kind of mark the time." And um, well, that's that's good. The midwives at this practice, though, I mean, I didn't see anyone mark down the time, you know, for at least ten minutes. So the, with I, the I, nurses or the midwives, the midwives, like the, these were well, we, our mid we, we went to a midwifery practice for the birth, so. I'm sure it's a little different in a formal hospital setting, but this is a midwife center within a hospital setting. And I'm just saying that they weren't like, you know, they weren't like, click, okay, write it down. Yeah, that wasn't like their primary concern. No, wasn't their primary concern. So just for whatever that's worth. No, I mean, that's actually really important because that raises an issue where some astrologers, this is a separate episode I want to do at some point in rectification that I've been putting off just like I was putting off this one because it's such a major topic. I wanted to do it, do a good job of it. But, um, some astrologers, I've met some like old school astrologers, modern astrologers that hold the belief, like Axel Harvey, for example, who passed away a few years ago, an astrologer from Canada, believed that all birth times that an astrologer is given should be rectified because he sort of goes in with the assumption that whatever the recorded time is, is not necessarily correct. And the astrologer should make some attempt to determine if it's correct. And if it does not look like it's responding in the way that he deemed appropriate whatever that means then he should adjust the time and and I always had some major like philosophical issues with that because of the scenario where maybe the astrologer just isn't using the right techniques or or just doesn't understand how that is the correct birth time even though it is and they could be altering the birth time and be wrong about it but you know instances like what you're talking about are are the other end of that side of that coin which which make the argument in favor of actually astrologers perhaps needing to do minor rectification. Yeah. I mean, I was left with that thought for sure. But what I was going to say is we got out of the, as we were being discharged, they made a mistake on our paperwork and wrote down that my wife had had twins. So oh, wow. <laughs> that was kind of funny. But um, at any rate, uh, my wife, when she saw that for a second, like, you know, got really paranoid. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> right. like uh, I was there, you know? <laughs> oh man. So, um, but at any rate, uh, no, but during birth, our doula asked my wife if she wanted rescue remedy for stress during some of the earlier stages of contractions. And rescue remedy is like a homeopathic remedy. And uh, they were like, at the hospital, they were like, oh, that's that's fine, you know. And uh, they don't care about homeopathics because in some ways people don't view homeopathics as, it's not really a substance, you know, it's 
they don't think of it like that. So they don't think it, you know, there can be any effect or, or whatever. A lot of modern medical minds sort of have that view and they think it's, well, good, try whatever works, you know, like, hey. But the thing is that one of the, th- the claims that homeopathy makes, it's not entirely different from um, what we're saying about these subdivisions mm-hmm. is that further and further subdivisions also may get down to a kind of es- essential potency. Right. Even if it appears to lose some kind of uh, objective uh, credence that there's something substantial and maybe even more powerfully essential when you go down to a more minor level. So that's actually a common uh, part of homeopathic medicine too. Yeah, that's actually a really great point. I feel both um, – as some, I don't know what to think about homeopathy and haven't looked into the issues. So I feel both like that's a really good important point and good point and also conflicted about the issue. But it's kind of funny. You could say – it's like hashtag uh, subdivisions are the homeopathy of astrology or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a little bit too long for a hashtag, but let's work on that. Yeah. Um, no, but that's that's a really good point about because that is the entire premise of what we're saying here is that the ascendant moving like one degree, literally just one degree forward in zodiacal order, could move into a completely different subdivision, like a different twelfth part or different navamsha, and then that would have like this ripple effect across the entire chart. Um, right for various reasons. Right. Yeah, I like that. That's good. All right. Um, so Indians, Navamshas, other subdivision charts, there's a lot there. That's probably the most fruitful area if some astrologers wanted to get more into this. I would look into the Indian tradition because it has such a rich background or a little bit more rich. I think in Hellenistic astrology, like in Hephaestu of Thebes, there's some evidence that Hellenistic astrologers may have cast separate subdivisional charts originally but for some reason we stopped that practice at some point and i'm not sure why but it might be worth looking into again because if you could contextualize what like a 12th part chart was supposed to mean or what some other subdivisional chart was supposed to mean that would give a great access point for understanding what some of those minute distinctions are are all about right all right so that's the put it on the list put it on the list on the list of things to research and that's partially what this is i mean this is partially i wanted to you know, we're trying to do a few different things with this episode, but one of them is just outline the issue, outline some of the solutions or some of the potential solutions. Not necessarily say that we have all the answers, but these are some of the, you know, important sort of avenues of research, or these are some of the ways that astrologers have attempted to answer the question if somebody would like to to pursue this and like make this your private research project or or what have you. All right. So those are that that's like the section I had here for for the in this discussion for small changes in the astrological chart that happen in just a few minute time frame. Um, other possible technical answers to the the issue of twins, though, one of them that I find really intriguing that also comes from Indian astrology is based on a distinction they make between the third and the eleventh houses, and this is that. Um, in some Indian traditions, they assign the younger siblings to the third house, which is traditionally in Western astrology. Typically, when you say siblings, usually the third house is the primary house that's mentioned. Um, so in Indian astrology, they say younger siblings are assigned to the third house and older siblings are assigned to the eleventh house. So that actually becomes really important to then when you're talking about twins because that could mean that the order of birth could actually matter where you know it's often mentioned like as a joke or something among twins that like the older sibling versus the younger sibling 
But symbolically, from an astrological standpoint, especially from a Vedic standpoint, they would interpret that very differently as one sibling being assigned to, you know, depending on the order, you know, where you would look for the other sibling in that person's chart. Right. And that then affects the role that that other sibling plays in that person's life and, and how it affects the native. Um, it affects things about the predictions of what will happen to the other sibling based on like if you have let's say Saturn in the 11th house as reflecting something about your older sibling and your relationship with them versus if you have Jupiter in the third house as re reflecting something positive, let's say about your relationship with your younger sibling or their success in life or what have you. Um, it introduces some major, if that distinction between older siblings in the 11th and younger siblings in the third was true, then it would in introduce some major interpretive distinctions based on the order of the birth, basically, is what I'm saying. So that's an interesting one where I've seen some really interesting things, actually, and that's a potential avenue of research. This also affects things like derived houses, potentially, which could become an issue. Let's see. Another major issue of technical things is here we can finally get to timing techniques. So earlier or later degrees for things like the ascendant or the moon or other things can change the activation of certain timing techniques and thus when certain progressions or transits or time lords or other things will change and be activated in the person's life. So timing techniques generally in astrology are used in order to determine when the things that are indicated in the birth chart will actually happen in the person's life. And sometimes when you have different degrees, that can change when the timing will occur. Right. Like if your midheaven shifts even three or four degrees with slow moving outer planets, those three or four degrees, you're talking about it, a difference in years in terms of when the, let's say, peak moments of the, you know, the perfecting of the transit may occur and, and hence like really pronounced events. So if two twins had their midheaven even two, three degrees apart with a planet like Pluto, they could both have maybe some pronounced events in in career, um, but they would be potentially several years apart. So, right, because Pluto moves like what, like a degree a year or something sometimes. Right, it's yeah, it's very it can be really slow. Right. So yeah, so that can make a huge difference in terms of the transits, um, also the progressions. You mentioned when the lots change that the if the lot of fortune or the lot of spirit changes signs that can change the zodiac releasing periods and that for me is a major thing because that's a core timing technique for me and you do see i mean this mainly comes up as an issue with clients when they're born when they have an exact birth time but their let's say their lot of spirit is at 29 degrees of a sign and if they were born a minute later it would have fallen into 0 degrees of the following sign in zodiac releasing that leads to that that small change of just a degree for that lot or that arabic part can lead to the difference of decades in terms of the timing technique because the timing technique whatever sign you start with you assign the first chapter of the person's life between 8 years at the shortest or 30 years at the longest depending on what sign it is and that becomes the first chapter of the person's life um right. and depending on what sign it is it can it can completely change that for one way or another. Yeah, I'm thinking if you if you move from Sagittarius to Capricorn, it's a huge difference. You know, you got 12 years versus what 27. So yeah, and and you end up sometimes with clients end up I end up having to rectify that and figure out during the course of the consultation like which one is true 
But oftentimes, because the technique is so stark and so straightforward in the way that it works, it, it usually tends to be pretty straightforward in figuring out which one is correct. That's a great point. I find I find that that's one thing that's really uh, helpful about also about using um, different Hellenistic techniques like whole sign houses and other things is that you know if you're you've said said this before many times, but if you're trying to rectify a chart and the ascendant changes and you're using whole sign houses. Well, okay, let's, if it changes the moon from the ninth to the 10th and you're thinking, oh, tell me a little bit about your life. And the person says, oh, you know, like I travel for a living, you know, or so I, right. I was born in a family that traveled all the time or something. You've got like, the moon in the ninth. Or my mother is from like a foreign con- country yeah, from where right. I live. Right. Something like that. It becomes that much easier to at least know the basic house and planet configuration. Maybe you can't specifically assign the ascendant degree with as much ease, but you can know if you're choosing between two signs, you can more easily determine like that. And I think that the same thing, basically what you're saying, I understand is, you know, the same thing is um, the same sensitivity exists with timing techniques that can, can the whole chart can shift and, um, but it's pretty easy to, um, to locate with hindsight, you know, hear a little bit about the life story and those, when you're doing it with clients, the same kinds of subtle changes do make big differences, but they're easy. You can rectify it pretty easily actually. Yeah, definitely. Especially for a person that has had like a relatively full life already and can go back and and look at their chronology and remember, you know, that they got married or they started this major 30 year relationship on this date or that, they retired from a job they were working at for 40 years on this date and and that chapter right. of their life ended it becomes very clear lining that up with the timing techniques right but yeah so timing techniques can be a major thing that changes depending on the birth time uh some techniques are more sensitive obviously than others but there's ones like zodiac releasing that can be incredibly sensitive um there's others that may be slightly less sensitive but may still have some minor changes all right. Uh, final section here in terms of just technical answers to the issue of twins that I had is this this concept called the division of the chart um, or dividing the chart. It doesn't really have a name, but I've seen a few modern astrologers like Liz Green and Stephen Forrest refer to it about this notion that uh, some astrologers report that twins will divide the chart and that each twin will appropriate certain features of the chart or will take on the qualities of certain planets more than the other. And the way that Liz Green describes this in in an aside that's mentioned on astro.com in one of their sort of delineation tutorials, and they actually cite it in an article on the issue of twins, they say that she evidently said that this is part of the twins defining themselves as distinct individuals from each other. So, that one twin will take on like the qualities of one planet and the other twin will take on the qualities of another part of the chart with other planets. And this is often framed by the modern astrologers as like a conscious or subconscious choice that they're using it in order to differentiate themselves from each other as part of a process that twins might go through. But I actually wonder if it could be connected to something we were talking about earlier, which is just small changes in time shifting the subdivisions in a chart and moving like the ascendant from one you know in your instance you're talking about the planet the ascendant moving from the bounds of one planet of like venus to the ascendant moving to the bounds of mars and therefore venus and mars being emphasized more in each person's character and each person's life 
sort of reflecting that shift in the subdivisions, which then is kind of interesting because then it almost makes me wonder if the modern astrologers are mistaking this as like a choice, either a conscious or subconscious choice that the twins are making when it actually might be more reflective of like some sort of technical thing that's going on in the chart itself. I also just wanted to interject, this thought came up as you were talking. I wonder if that idea is applicable as as easily applied to identical twins as it is to fraternal twins because you'll have um with identical twins you have the same genes so they look alike and there's if i remember correctly they are um sharing the some the share something then it splits off i forget what how that works um and then whereas with non-identical twins they i think they each get their own egg okay. and it's two two separate sperms and two separate eggs anyway there's some difference between the two of them i can't quite remember it but i wonder if the same idea of the splitting of the splitting of one egg and the the splitting of the chart is different for an identical twin than a fraternal twin if i have that correct but anyway it's just a thought that popped into my head yeah and and that like raises a separate issue and this is one of the things we run into with astrology is that ideally like the person who should take on this issue or a person that would be most suited to taking on this issue is somebody that has some sort of background into the research of like twins and the lives of twins in general and if there's somebody that like you know had a doctorate and had done like a phd dissertation on the lives of twins and also happen to be into astrology or also happen to be an astrologer, they would be very suitable for something like this because they would have that that additional background, like like medical background or psychological background or ability to draw on other research that's being done in in different fields in order to bring that to bear on this issue. But typically, like with most things, like astrology it's just astrologers who are just like everyday people that primarily specialize in astrology who will occasionally sort of like dabble in or try to address the issue. And it's kind of like an issue with a number of areas with astrology where astrologers generally aren't specialists in other fields that then get into astrology, but they're generally like primarily specialists in astrology. And sometimes they try to pick up some of the necessary background in other fields to sort of get by and do what they need to do with astrology uh, as sort of a broader topic. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Um, obviously, like people like Liz Green, she's got a, a pretty uh, um, uh, academic background in, in therapy and psychology and things like that. Um, but I think one thing that's very interesting to note is that there's this recent uh, movie that came out. I think it was called Three Identical Strangers or something like that. And I saw it on my birthday, and it was a documentary about these three triplets that were separated at birth as a part of a basically uh, sort of clinical research experiment into twins or uh, triplets or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was done through an orphanage, and they separated the triplets at birth and didn't tell the adopting parents that they were being separated because, and then they, the, as a part of, their adoption paperwork, they required that they be part of an ongoing study about how ad- these adopted children were like ad- uh, coping with or adapting to their homes and their um, in the environments. And these were families who had already had a placement with the uh, adoption agency in the past. They already had one adopted child. Uh, and so 
basically they withheld from the families though was that they were really studying how three identical triplets would turn out what kind of lives they would live based on different nurturing environments um so nature versus nurture kind of thing um and it was it's just a really interesting film that looked at how you know the siblings the three siblings though raised in totally different environments demonstrated these incredible similarities you know and then also there was one of the triplets um took his own life and that happened when they were much older but uh the basic gist of the film that the film raised was it, it appears as though the parenting style of the one triplet uh, the, the environment that they were in, which was pretty intense and, and rigid, uh, contributed significantly to his mental health problems, whereas the other people who were raised in environments that weren't as severe did not. So th- that nature versus nurture issue throughout the entire film was it just, you know, for me as an astrologer, it was fascinating. It goes back to what we were talking about, other causal influences in the life of the individual were these, and they were born... I. I kid you not, I think it was, I could be wrong about this actually, but I think it was like they were each born like two minutes apart or something. It was a total of like 10 minutes between the three of them or something. Okay. So that's a situation right right there where you you have, uh, you know, same same basic idea where there's, there's research that, that people are trying to do with twins that um, – to some extent about nature and nurture and stuff like that, that, and that, that was, that was really, there's never been a study like it since it was, it's has been deemed by many people as unethical. It was part of the reason why the film was made was to sort of, sort of expose it because the triplets, even to today, the ones that are still living have not been given access to the results. Uh, again, apparently the film helped them get access to the results of the study so they could learn it about it. But even then, I think the information that they gained was very minimal so yeah, the, there's research out. I think there's limited amount of research, even in the medical world, about the the question of nature and nurture with things like twins. Right. Well, that's probably then a good time to get into the other part of this, which is the broader philosophical and conceptual answers to the the twins question in general. And one of them that you're bringing up here is the the first one that I have on my list, basically, which is that the context of the chart matters. And one of the basic questions that astrologers have, because one of the issues is that although natal astrology is the most um, common type of astrology and has been for a long time now, there's also existed for over 2,000 years the concept of electional or inceptional astrology, which is the notion that you can also cast a birth chart for the beginning of anything that has a definite beginning and that chart will reflect something about the the nature and the future of what was initiated at that time. So then that would mean by extension that um, when astrologer is just like given a chart, an astrologer cannot tell just from looking at the chart if it's the chart of a human or a business or a turtle or what have you. Um, but instead, in order to be able to interpret that chart correctly for that specific being or whatever it is, that entity, you have to actually know the context and that the context actually makes a difference. Right. I would, I mean, for me, philosophically, one of the things that I would add to that from the space of sort of my yoga philosophy background is that every soul is different. So that, you know, I I believe everybody is a spirit soul. So that's part of my belief system. Then if, if I'm looking at, you know, two different charts, 
it's also it's two different people, but it's also two different souls. So I I tend to think of it through the lens of my own beliefs as, um, you know, different different karmic backgrounds, different uh, different things, baggage that each soul brings to bear on the 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 body that they enter and the life that they're living and the um the obviously the different forms that each soul is inhabiting even though identical on some levels by time and perhaps by certain forms of genetics and heredity and stuff like that that there's there's also something totally unique about each being and and that is also uh why every astrological moment has to have context because it, it it's speaking to uh the way that i think of a chart is very much in terms of it it being descriptive of the material situation that a conscious eternal entity finds itself in so through the lens of my own beliefs again that's sort of how i see the context situation sure well right and therefore like the chart of like a, a human is going to be different than like the chart of a dog uh, right. In terms of how they're going to manifest the placements that are indicated uh, symbolically in that chart, uh, and they're going to have different like lifespans. Like, a, you know, how long does like a like a, what's an average like dog's lifespan? Like ten or twenty years? Sure, let's say like ten to fifteen or something. Right. So the the context of that is much different. Or on the other hand, you can also have a chart cast for like a country, like the United States was, you know, born at a specific period in time in the in the 18th century and there's died in 2016 right we're we're in the process of it uh so it it has a chart as well so the chart of a country but the chart and there's different debates about what the correct chart is but let's just say hypothetically that there is one single specific chart for the united states as a country and that's been around for you know a couple of hundred years now versus the lifetime of a human which might be at most like a like a century or something right so right. you have different contexts there um context matters and additionally um the situation that the person is born into matters and this is where the the you, you know nature and nurture thing comes into play for you uh, in terms of what you were saying in terms of what is the family that the the twins let's say are born into um what is the cultural context that they're born into what time frame are they born into what socio-political status are they born into in terms of um you know are they born into like let's say a very wealthy family or are they born into a very poor family what is this sort of starting point that the people have in order to manifest the chart that they're actually working with and this primarily actually becomes more relevant, especially within the context of time twins and the issue of, let's say there's two different people that are born at exactly the same moment in time. So let's say hypothetically, we get rid of all the previous discussion about slight differences in charts that can, that there can be major differences in charts. If people are born a few minutes apart, let's say two people hypothetically now that we're talking about two people that have the exact same chart, but they they were born at the exact same moment in time and exact same location but they were born into two different families and that there's going to be depending on let's say like the parents and the family that the person is born into there's going to be a lot of different variables going into how that person is raised and therefore how they end up growing into their chart in some sense right i think of um the one of the ideas um there's this great book by Ashlish Delela i believe that's his name 
It's uh, called Mystic Universe, and it's about Vedic cosmology. And he, in that book, he talks about how uh, individual souls or sentient beings are thought of as like uh, nodes in a in a great network, and each node has a sort of different perspective on the divine whole um, and the sacred whole, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, the same field he was talking about Vedic astrology in this case, um, the same field described by the planets and stars and so forth. Uh, in in one birth chart uh, will sort of necessarily be experienced differently and will outline a different set of parameters for a different being specifically because the every being represents a different mode of perception or a different um, vantage point of of looking at things and so the interaction again between like the objective and the subjective that we can have the same astrology at the same moment in time from the same location. Also, like you said, being applied to potentially a very specific horary case, like someone wondering if they'll get a job, or it could be applied to looking at a current event that's unfolding in the city center at that time, or it, it, it could be uh, relative to a birth. And, and, and the, his way of explaining it was like, you know, basically the, um, you know, the, the planet's, set the field of activities which is like the the um the shetra like the the uh sort of like your the parameters of the uh if you were if you're going into like a and you think about your incarnation into a body is a kind of like an artificial intelligence program like a video game or something the parameters of your mission or your specific situation is unique not only to the the planets in in you know the greater sense that are defining the birth chart but also to the unique position that you hold in relation to them so that 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 objective subjective dynamic can't ever be taken apart and there's for i know for what he was saying is that well this may be maddening to certain kinds of scientific minded people this is actually the the heart of a sort of mystical realization in in their tradition so interesting um, yeah, I mean, that really starts getting into something much deeper about the nature of astrology when you, when we get into this, because it's telling us something about what a birth chart is when we're looking at it, and it's something sort of important that astrologers probably need to pay more attention to. And it just comes back to that whole issue of there's certain things that you don't know when you're looking at a chart just from the chart itself or certain pieces of information, but that can radically change the context of how a person is going to be able to live out that chart in their actual life. Like even something as simple as like, is the person born, even if they have the exact same chart, are they like a male or a female? Um, they're going to have different challenges and there's going to be different things in their life that they find challenging or different experiences that they have that are going to be radically different just based on that. And they're going to have certain things that might be similar uh, in terms of how they play certain things out, but they're also going to have different, let's say, just societal challenges that are going to be much different depending on their gender. Um, or other things like, you know, geographically, let's say you have a, a woman that's born in like, you know the U.S. or something today versus, let's say, there's a who who goes and let's say you know has a transit of some sort and gets her driver's license 
at the age of 16 versus you know up until very recently like if you're a woman that was born in like let's say Saudi Arabia or something uh driving was banned sort of in general so there's like a different cultural context about how a woman would live out a chart in like the US versus like let's say you know somewhere else depending on the cultural context all right i'm thinking like Nina Simone who is a a famous um um african american um musician right it, she has Saturn like in her first house in Aquarius, and um, if if the astrologer it during whenever when she whenever she was born, it was not it was uh, n- not the greatest environment for an African American woman, right? Obviously, the time that she was born in, um, and if you're an astrologer back then, I think what we're saying is you better take into account that Saturn in the first house is being read in a, in a black woman's chart in the South during a time period where there's prejudice or whatever, like that, that Saturn, obviously she changed her name to hide her performing career from both her family who thought that jazz was devil's music, you know, and also, uh, so that, um, she'd have a better performing name because she was already facing prejudice from like white, you know, producers and like not you know what i mean so you read that saturn in her first house um very differently when you know those details about her and i, and I always say this to my students when we're talking about reading for clients is there's no shame in asking a few questions getting a little a little bit of background information about your client and so sometimes i think astrologers also believe that or people who are learning about astrology believe that astrologers are to know everything without any context. And it's actually really important to get some context. Right. And that's super, super crucial. And that's the thing that actually in practice, astrologers, when they see clients, are getting that context. And that's the importance of having a verbal exchange. And there's a real issue there because astrologers should know and understand that that's part of, that's a necessary part of the process because of this issue of the chart could apply to anything. And you have to understand the context in which the chart is operating in order to be able to use it or make statements or make predictions accurately or anywhere near accurately versus one of the issues and one of the reasons why astrologers have trepidation about that sometimes are asking those types of questions is because of the other skeptical allegation that astrologers are just cold reading people and are are just are not that astrology doesn't work but instead astrologers are just you know, picking up on subtle hints and clues that the client is saying during the consultation in order to tell them what they want to hear or in order to tell them things about their life that were not determined through astrology. Um, but that's where you have like these two separate critiques that become it becomes kind of like self-defeating because astrologers need to be clearer about articulating that this is what needs to happen for this reason and that's okay, or or understanding the context of the chart as part of the process of doing a consultation for these philosophical and conceptual reasons, it becomes a necessity and not something that's being done because astrology is not working or is not adequate or what have you. Right. Yeah. All right. So that's a really important one. Again, that gets into something really deep about the nature of astrology that needs to be better articulated. I don't know if I can fully articulate it now. I'm still struggling to come up with what the exact articulation is, but it's something about the context in which the chart operates is relevant to being able to make any statements about it because the chart itself otherwise is indicating things very broadly. And it's only, this probably gets into our next point, which we could probably just transition into now, which is that 
It's the statement that Richard Tarnas makes that astrology is archetypally predictive. And that's probably what's lying at the core of that underlying issue that we're talking about here in terms of the context of the chart being important is that the astrology itself is archetypally predictive. And what we mean by that is that each placement in the chart has a range of possible meanings. And the placements, like the same placement in two people's charts, may manifest in ways that are different um, in terms of the specifics, but that broadly speaking are still archetypally similar or still fall under the same sort of archetypal umbrella, let's say. Right. Yeah. In fact, in when I was speaking with the twins, uh, or the one sibling of the of the twin sisters, um, one thing that was really interesting was I looked at transits to their sun sign. And uh, like I looked at a Uranus opposition, a Neptune opposition, and I think it was a Saturn square or something like that. But I looked at hard aspects to the sun sign, which as a symbol, in an archetypally predictive sense, you might say something like, a hard transit to the sun from any outer planet may bring up some uh, opportunities for individuation. The, the sun having something to do with your sense of destiny or purpose or your actions in the world and things you're trying to make of yourself or your authority or recognition or visibility or something like that. So, I, you know, archetypally, we would expect that twins with the same sun, same house, same sign, with transits from outer planets, let's say, to that sun would be having similar archetypal experiences, even if they're not identical. And that's exactly what I found when I interviewed her, which was, you know, at these important moments, like Uranus opposite the sun, they were individuating in very different ways, and in some ways from one another. So they were one was defining herself in terms of, um, uh, kind of avant-garde rebellious art and music and punk scene while the other was becoming more and more sort of introverted and interested in things like buddhism etc cetera, etc cetera, following their parents interests in some ways but their 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 split at that moment was they they started going to separate schools one went to the art school the other you know so they were individuating they were both having big moments of individuation but they looked very different and in some ways the individuation was actually defined by splitting away from one another by defining themselves in contrast to one another and that that repeated in a number of different um transits to the sun that i i kept looking into with her it was really cool interesting um yeah and and i mean that becomes a really core underlying issue here in terms of astrology being archetypally predictive in the same placement manifesting in ways that are different in the specifics but archetypally similar. So for example, two people born at the same time that have the exact same chart but are born to different families, let's say, you know, one they both have Mars in the 10th house of career and one of them becomes an athlete and the other one goes into the military. Uh, like a, a skeptic or somebody would say, see, look, the astrology is not working because these two people ended up having completely different careers. Whereas an astrologer would look at that and say, no, they're both manifesting versions of the archetype of Mars within the context of their career. And that is exactly what you would expect within the context of the astrology. Right, right, exactly. That, And that's what I, I did. I mean, I spent 90 minutes with her going over all different kinds of transits to a few different planets. And that was Every single one was like that. It was they were different, but archetypally, any astrologer I think sitting in would have just been, you know, 
getting giddy because it's like, oh, it's archetypally similar, even though it's specifically different every every time. Sure. So that gets to something then really deep and important about the the very nature of astrology and all of the placements being fundamentally archetypal in some sense is that there's a broad range of meanings in which they could manifest. And there's this sort of open question that we don't know the answer to, which is what's causing them to manifest differently? Or is that something that's predetermined still in some way, the the eventual outcome of the manifestation? Or is it something that's being affected by things like choice or free will or the person, let's say, if if they have a soul or what have you, um, that that's something about the person's soul that's causing that to be to go in in one direction or another, while still manifesting within the broad context of the same archetype, and that, and that's sort of there's there's an unanswered question that's difficult to answer there, and there's different sort of historically astrologers have had different philosophical and and sort of religious answers to that. Um, modern astrologers often will fill in and say it's due to free will and sort of jump to that conclusion. But I know there's many different answers that you could probably come up with. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking right now in the bhakti yoga tradition that I study and practice, um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is this, like one of the sacred scriptures. And there's a, there's a passage in it where Krishna actually says to Arjuna, where they're sort of contemplating the nature of life and reality and the soul and everything. And they're talking about karma and Krishna says, you know, not even the wisest sages understand the workings of karma because it's it's deeply mysterious. Of course, the word karma in that context, like the word praxis in Greek, uh, Greek astrology just literally means action. And so action and reaction, action and outcomes, that there's a certain amount of this that we can see and have some insight into with astrology um, and certainly something about the archetypal range of possible meanings takes us somewhere in the right direction of understanding some of the uh, mysterious elements of why we can know certain things and why we can't know other things or how fate and free will interact or whatever. But I, you know, again, my own, where my own personal sort of philosophical thinking comes in is that it's at the end of the day, it's like, it's deeply mysterious. If people have been mystics and philosophers have been contemplating, I think this very topic in different ways, in, in, not only inside astrology, but in, in other ways too. And even in, um, when I was in India last winter, I was talking with Rick Levine about this, you know, cause he, he really has a, um, uh, he has a, uh, talk that he's done many times on sort of the quantum uncertainty and, you know, this kind of stuff. But I think, in other words, I think the similar kinds of complexities and mysteries exist in a lot of different philosophical areas that are very similar to this conundrum. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you, you mentioned karma. And I mean, in a in a Hindu context or in the context of Indian astrology, they would say that was is the reason is that different people come into this life having different karmas from actions that they took in past lives and so there's something that you're carrying forward that's then altering the trajectory of how you're going to manifest whatever placements you have in your birth chart in this life. Right. One of the examples that I've heard n- numerous times given by different um, bhakti um, gurus and and so forth is um, your karma is a bit like uh, like let's say the birth chart reflecting your karma. In this case, it would be like. Uh, getting in an airplane from New York to London 
And between New York and London, you know, you don't have a choice. You're going from one destination to the other. And so there's a certain sense in which the parameters of your fate are predetermined according to your karma. But then within the airplane ride, there is, you have free will and there's a range of things you could do. You could watch a movie or talk to your neighbor or get up or, you know, whatever. So there's like a certain field of uh, activities that you can perform within the parameters um, designated by your karma. And that's often used to say, to encourage people in the bhakti path, for example, that even though karma is determining things, you're, you should use your free will as best you can because the journey between, you know, between uh, discrete karmically determined events, which let's say a birth chart indicates in some way, is still largely up to you. And in fact, also, depending on whether or not in, in the yogic tradition, let's say you engage in the practice of yoga, which would be about sort of awakening your consciousness, there may be some level in which, uh, some level at which the experience of your karma is open to change. Um, my teachers, for example, aren't keen on the idea that you can just change whatever you want willy-nilly they will say your experience of of your karma can can change and that's actually how you are thought to make spiritual progress in the path of yoga is not so much by altering things physically like getting a better car or a better house or something like that but um by learning how to experience let's say happiness or contentment throughout different kinds of fluctuations in your material life um and that's thought to gradually improve your you know your karma from one lifetime to the next if you focus on that instead Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent here, but that there's definitely, I think the Indian tradition is a great example of a, a tradition that's really, really tried to get in there and riddle with the complexities of karma and action and fate and free will and stuff. And of course, astrology is a huge part of that tradition. Right. Yeah. I think um, back when I was studying Indian astrology, I think it was in a book by David Frawley called the called From the River of Heaven that he articulated this idea. This like Hindu idea of there being like four different types of karma, and that there were different levels of like negotiability. Of like there were some types of karma that are completely negotiable, and that you don't have to deal with. Whereas there's this extreme version, which are karmas that you can't get out of, and that you sort of must do in this life. So that I mean, that's a whole other different like philosophical and sort of religious set of of things, and that doesn't even necessarily have to be. The answer to this, I mean, I could imagine just hypothetically a person doesn't have to go in that direction because there's other, you know, things happening. Again, just going back to the previous point about the context that the person is born into, which is if you want to take it, I mean, philosophically, like a Hindu astrologer would, or an Indian astrologer would say that the family that a person is born into is a result of their karmas. Even if you wanted to remove the idea of karma as a philosophical or metaphysical explanation for all of that, the fact that you can have two people that are born into, let's say, born with the same exact birth chart, but born into two different families, that means each of those families is going to you know, raise the person in a different way, and their socioeconomic status and everything else is going to have an impact on how the person manifests certain placements in their chart and the archetypal like range of meanings that it could manifest. So going back to the Mars in the 10th example, let's imagine you were born into a family of athletes where like you have a long history where like your father and your grandfather were Olympic gold medal winning athletes. 
and that's the context of life that you're born into, and therefore perhaps you might have more of an inclination to manifest that Mars in the tenth house transit as yourself going into and becoming an athlete versus if you're born into like a military family where your your father and your grandfather and you know whatever great grandfather were all like generals or something in the military or were like navy seals or something if you're born in that context then you again you might be more inclined to manifest that mars in the 10th house placement as going into the military yourself so sort of a combination of those two different points of the context matters and astrology is archetypally predictive right yeah all right. So, um those are like the first two philosophical and conceptual things. I realize this is going long. Are you doing okay on time? Uh yeah, we should probably wrap up sooner than later, but you know, I can go on a little bit. Okay. We're getting there. We just got like three more major points to touch on. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So, one of the other major philosophical and conceptual answers to the twins issue is Something I touched upon in one of my episodes last month, which is the concept and the technique of synastry. And it's the notion that each person that we come into contact with in our life is kind of like a transit to our chart. And as long as that person is in our life, it's kind of like a permanent transit to our chart because that person has their own birth chart that's going to interact with our birth chart in certain ways and is going to um, raise certain dynamics in our life and in our relationship with them just based on what the alignment of the planets were when they were born and whatever that sort of imports into our life. So one of the things or one of the routes that I've gone with this conceptually is that two people can't be in the same place at the same time. Like immediately, as soon as you're born, even if you're born with like twins into the same family, you're eventually going to have come into interaction with like different people and you're going to form different relationships in your life and therefore, there's going to be different almost like transits that are imported into your life through the synastry based on your interaction with different people. And some of those relationships are going to unlock different parts of the chart. And in some instances, that might be positive. In other instances, that might be negative, depending on what the specific synastry is. And I have to imagine that that's part of the sort of developmental process for all people is depending on what kind of relationships we get into and what kind of synastry we have with those people, that's going to affect our like developmental process with certain planets in our chart. But also in terms of the divergence between twins, or even between, let's say, the divergence of lives between time twins, so two people born with the exact same chart, but into a different family, that the different relationships that they have with people and the different synastry relationships they have in their life is going to have a major impact and is a major variable in terms of how they grow into their own chart. Right. Yeah. I'm also thinking of the fact that there's something um I'm thinking of a couple of things. One is that there's something that we should always remember in my opinion um anyway as astrologers uh, which is that the sky doesn't stop moving. So the 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 chart again this is reflecting just my own disposition about astrology but to me the chart is like a, a ritual kind of um oracular procedure and so i i believe that you know one of the reasons i take that up is because i consider karma and um and fate and destiny to be a uh, dynamic not static and so i i either have to remember in my head that the the static picture of the chart is somewhat artificial 
you know, in the sense that the sky never really stops moving or that, or that the way that the, all these different techniques are done, we're looking at often symbolic modes of continued movement or literal interactions of continual movement with the chart. And I think that sort of connects technically to what you're saying about how people enter our lives and come in from different directions and bring their own things. And that the, the, the chart is, is the sky isn't static. And and so even though the picture of the birth chart appears static, it's really not reflecting something that's static or it's not reflecting a static entity or a static reality. That's how I look at it. So it has to be dynamic and uh, continuously moving and changing because the, the, as I understand it, you know, from whether you're looking at Plato and the way that he talked about this material space as a uh, continual ebb and flow of of things that coming to be and passing away, or you look at Heraclitus or Lao Tzu and different people, you never step in the same river twice, or Lao Tzu with the Tao, or Indian astrologers, the theory of you know impermanence and change being the the norm here that our astrology has to take into consideration some of that dynamism and how it understands what a birth chart is saying and how it's saying it as well as who it's saying it about or what it's saying it about that they're all dynamic ongoing um fluxional states that they're that they are uh reflecting in a in a chart right uh, yeah, or, or like another way or connected way. It's just that there's so many. One of the things we're getting to here is there's so many actual variables and operative variables that are outside of the astrologer's field of vision. Or, or maybe you could look into some of them. Like you could look into the synastry relationships. Where, when I say synastry relationships with the person's birth chart, what I mean is like that. That's true of both romantic relationships, where you can have you know, two people with the same chart end up having different romantic relationships and that it's synastry affects a person's birth chart. But even just the family that you're born into, you're gonna have some sort of synastry relationship with your like your mother's birth chart. You're gonna have some sort of synastry relationship with right. your father's birth chart. And those are gonna impact the sort of dynamic that you have with that parent. And they're going to going back to one of our previous points about the the nature and nurture thing, the way that your own sort of predispositions indicated by the birth chart are emphasized in different ways for better or worse. Um, that starts getting into though, just so many different variables that are actually right. operative in any person's life when it comes to the astrology. They're just, you could say like millions or trillions or, or billions, they're innumerable. And even though in some way you could start to try to look into some of them like the astrologers you realize at a certain point are really just scratching the surface of all of the innumerable variables that are operative in any person's life from an astrological standpoint and that becomes sort of an important other philosophical or conceptual consideration right and because at that point well this is kind of connected to why it is that such small variables could be so significant because there are so many operative variables in some ways i have begun in my own practice to see the abundance of operative variables not so much in terms of um uh like you know trying to fit in everything to get arrive at the perfect and most uh, concretely accurate description of a person or their life, but rather I have started to see all of the sort of innumer innumerable 
uh, operating variables in, in astrology, let's say all the different tools and different techniques and so forth as um, different kinds of tools and that utilizing one, getting to know one and training yourself to one in a sort of sh- almost shamanic sense allows for the enhancement of the tool that the, that any tool, even a small tool can potentially say something very accurate and specific the, the more that you also sort of cultivate a relationship with with the the tool um and to me that is that that idea anyway is appealing to me because it fits in with my uh my basic you know beliefs about the nature of reality and so forth that 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 the, the sometimes you i think i've called to mind i was raised in a, in the christian church i was a preacher's kid and i call to mind the idea that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed you know so sometimes what's uh, big is actually very small and insignificant and what's small can be of great significant or something significance or something like that and that sometimes uh the uh, plethora of details that is actually uh helping the mind to drop out of trying to make sense of everything in order to focus on one thing which then actually has the same power as what appeared to be a greater number of variables out outside uh, I don't know if that makes some sense. It's sort of like if you look at a, if you're sitting on the beach and you try to count all the grains of sand, you know, um, you may, uh, you think, well, I'll, I'll have my insight into the nature of God or divinity or reality or something. If I count every grain of sand on the beach, um, you know, different mystics have commented that basically like at some point your frustration with trying to count it all will have you focus on one grain of sand like a madman that eventually you'll see God in it. But like it's kind of like that idea that I, I have as a more of my, my own mystic uh leanings that have me um you know I, I basically but believe that there could be um that the innumerable the innumerableness in astrology is not necessarily reflective of contradictions or or the call to need to use all of it or make sense of all all of it either. Sure. Or or using an analogy, there's some analogy there about all the grains of sand in astrology are relevant, but then it all, you know, what you actually look at, what the astrologer is looking at is they're looking at the sand castle that is the result of of all of those things. But really, there is just like innumerable things going into it that makes up the final end product. Right. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way of looking at it too. Something something like that. Um, okay. So there's one. There's two other issues. Two other things in the philosophical and conceptual thing. <laughs> Let's go to the beach. Right. Um, we're going to need that after this long two hour episode. So, <laughs> but I think we're doing important work here. I think this is really important because I don't think like I haven't seen anyone attempt to articulate things like this when it comes to the twin issues. And I've been looking for something, wanting to put something like this out for a while. So I'm glad we were able to do it today. And I'm happy with with how this went. Um, Excellent. So relocational astrology as a relatively recent innovation over the past century, half a century, maybe less, past few decades. And I've done an episode on this with Moses Siragar a while ago. And the premise is that- Speaking at nightlight tonight. Oh, he is. Okay. Yep, that's a nice nice plug. If I wish I had done that consciously earlier, the, the recording will still be available for people. Okay, what's he speaking on? Uh, Vedic astrology for Western astrologers. All right, nice. Well, that ties in well with this also. So we talked about relocational astrology, and the basic premise is that different locations 
depending on where a person moves from where they're born. So you have the birth chart, which is set for the date, time, and location of birth, and the alignment of the planets relative to that date, time, and location from the perspective of the observer. But that if a person moves to a different part of the country or a different part of the world, that the emphasis of the chart could change in some ways with different sort of interpretations about whether that completely changes the chart or whether it just changes like the small emphasis of certain parts of the chart. But let's say if it's just in that limited sense where um, you know, a person moves and it moves it so that their ascendant had Jupiter right on the ascendant in the birth chart, and it changes it so that they move to a, a part of the world where they have Mars on the ascendant in that part of the world in the birth chart, and it somehow emphasizes the planet Mars more in their chart, that means that two people that were born at the same moment in time, let's say time twins in different families, if they move to different parts of the world and have a different relocated chart, then there could be different parts of their chart that are being emphasized just based on their geographical location, and that being a way that the charts then are diverging as well from a philosophical and technical standpoint. Right, and I've seen um, um, Jen Zart came and gave a talk on relocational astrology in my, one of my speaker series programs a year or two ago. And one of the things that she was saying was that sometimes a planetary line running through another country may manifest itself in terms of like an interest in that country, and not even necessarily moving there. But sometimes those kinds of subtle shifts with planetary lines relocated around, you know, relocational planetary lines around the planet, what does your chart look like or what kinds of planets are sort of situated uh, where if you relocate your chart sort of in different parts of the world or something like that may also indicate that a person has different uh, affinities for different cultures or religions or even, um, you know, for in the case of Jen, you know, she started taking an interest in German things before she ended up in Germany and had like a line running through Germany or whatever for her she went to school there for her doctorate, I believe. So there's something like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it just introduces a whole other dy uh, dynamic or a whole other perspective on this whole issue in terms of two charts being the same, but then what happens to the person later in the life as a result of circumstance or choices, introducing other astrological variables that do become relevant. Right. All right. And then finally, we get to the final philosophical and perhaps the, the big, the, the, the granddaddy of all the philosophical and conceptual issues, which is uh, the free will versus fate and choices issue, where we've already sort of talked about this a little bit at this point, but where two people with similar predispositions may make different choices. And the question of to what extent the chart is the chart just indicating predispositions or is it indicating final outcomes? And it seems due to the direction that we're going here in terms of astrology being archetype, archetypally predictive, that it may be in some instances indicating more like predispositions, but that there might be some sort of choice that comes into play about which direction the person goes, or if choice does make any sort of difference in terms of um, how the chart chart plays out. I had a theology professor when I was in my undergrad. Uh, I did my undergrad in philosophy, and my uh, theology professor was explaining a view of the interaction between. Uh, he was sort of radical um, at the time. His name was Greg Boyd, and he had this book called God of the Possible, and it was about 
a view of God's basically sovereignty and and preordination and stuff like that, control of our lives that was concurrent with um, free will and a, somewhat of an open future. And the way he articulated it at one point that I found really interesting was he said, is as though there are certain events in our life that God has ordained. And this is a Christian school that I was at. There are ordained and that are inevitable. And however, on a timeline, you, you think of the timeline as kind of like going down through your life. And there's these big wide filters um, that uh, you're going around in, in sort of like circles, like a penny going down one of those chutes. And uh, as you get to the event, your choices sort of change your trajectory with the uh, event horizon. You know, you're, you're, you've got an event that's there that's preordained, but your choices influence how exactly the shape and nature of that event. That's how I think of it personally, rather than just influences and a wide open future. I think of it as uh, like the archetypal predictiveness suggests that there are things that are going to happen, like a Pluto transit to your midheaven or something like that. It's going to be something related to your work that's going to happen. But the way that you're funneling into that event with your free will um, suggests that there are a, a, there's some variety uh, and flexibility in terms of exactly what and how it will happen. And so there's there's some there's some flexibility, but also some determinedness at the same time. Right. It might be like archetypally deterministic, but the if that was true, if it's archetypally deterministic, there would be like a range of possible manifestations where it has to manifest in this range, but there's still some variability in terms of the choice that one could make. Like going back to the Mars in the tenth example, like athlete, you know, or the choice between right. right becoming athlete or military, which is. But then we we run into an issue there where we still have a philosophical issue of did the person go that direction because they made the choice or did they go that direction because of the predispositions of the situation they were born into uh, in terms of let's say their family if the family situation was true where they had like a military family or a uh, athletic family although I guess if they went the opposite direction they had a military family but they decided to become an athlete or they had an athletic family and they decided to go into the military, maybe that would be more of a situation of choice then rather than disposition. But one of, yeah, I, I, I tend to take a slightly more deterministic view myself, though I'm not like, I don't believe everything is determined. I believe, I do believe we have free will, but one of the reasons that I've been compelled to take a slightly more determined, deterministic position about this, more about, you know, faded events in our life is be, because of something that I learned from my participation for 10 years in like ayahuasca shamanism communities and then the yoga world, both of which feature really rigorous um, spiritual disciplines where you are learning how to control your senses and control your mind, control your breathing, and control basically your conscious response to different kinds of environments that are very intense. And um so one of some of the things that my teachers have said over time is you know, so many people uh, extol the virtues of uh, the, the virtue of free will and the they're in praise of co-creation and, and create, you know, kind of creating your own reality and doing something with the influences around you and stuff like that. But put, tell any of those people to give up sugar for 40 days and see if they can do it. Probably, you know, most human beings have a really hard time, in other words, uh, recognizing and distinguishing whims 
and unconscious desires and, and forces that they have in their lives that are habitual from actual freedom, which oftentimes can't really be discovered until you push yourself to, um, you know, discover freedom through, you know, saying no to things that actually ha- really have you in their power. I feel after being a regular meditator for years now and uh, owner of yoga studio and so forth that most people have no idea how compelled they are by forces that they think that they're they think that they're in control of everything but actually it's um they're what they mistake for choices are actually whims and unconscious desires so that's uh, that's the the sole reason it's not even it's not intellectual so much for me as it is a physical reason that's based in trying to practice yoga and realizing how hard it is to really exercise any freedom and control over one's unconscious desires. But that, you know, whether others agree with me or not, obviously is a a different issue, but that's sort of where I stand on it. Yeah. Well, well, and also I think the discussion often is on free will and fate. Fate is usually framed in a negative context because of like, probably going back to like er early attempts by like Aristotle and stuff to define free will within a like a political context or a social context of like slavery and having the choice to be enslaved or not. If you're, if you're a slave, you don't have the ability to to make your own political determination or self-determination, but um, you know, free will and fate can easily also be framed in a positive context of like, you know, what if there's somebody that you've fallen like madly in love with, or that's your fate to, um, fall in love and get married with that person. So would you ex- exercise your free will just for the sake of it and leave that relationship um, in order to demonstrate that you can change your fate? And and right. for most people, right. they, they're like, no, they're not going to do that. But then by doing so, they could be you know, then fated to do that and therefore accepting their fate or not realizing how much sometimes even positive things could be predetermined or fated to occur. It's easy in yoga when yoga's bottom line is that nothing in the material world is ultimately anything you desire in the material world is ultimately fruitless. So they they would, you know, they they would say that you're the the argument to say I'm not going to renounce my fated relationship because it's positive is ultimately delusion. So they, mm-hmm. it's very it's very cut and dry in that sense, but I I agree with what you're saying. I'm just you know, it's it's the I think that the yeah, it's it's really it's it's tricky territory when you get into talking about fate and, and free will because a lot of I, I believe a lot of what fate and free will boils down to also has to do with desire and w- with what we believe we can get with free will and w- or what the use of free will should or shouldn't be. Um, so a lot of the times the conversations are loaded with um, deeper questions about the the appropriate. Uh, metaphysical, spiritual, or ethical use or purpose for having free will, if if it is there, right? Yeah, and and let me. There's one last thing w- related to this, and this is one direction that I went with this, or one question that I had for those that are of a more like esoteric or, or metaphysical mindset with astrology. Where one of the questions I had wanted to pose is: to what extent does the chart, if if you take for granted the concept of a soul, let's say. To what extent does the chart represent, or is it representative of the soul itself, versus a sort of mask of predispositions that the soul has adopted in a given lifetime? If you're accepting, you know, like like evolutionary for astrology, for example, is very big right now and, and has a lot of 
metaphysical assumptions about the soul and about reincarnation and karma and all sorts of things like that. And I raise this because one of the things in like Hermeticism and like ancient Hermeticism from about 2000 years ago is the idea that um, they had the idea of the ascent and the descent of the soul, where the soul, when it's descending in an incarnation, it goes through the planetary spheres and it um, is given or it adopts certain properties that it wears as sort of like a mask um, in the person's lifetime when they're actually born. And then it plays out those those properties of those planets in, in different ways as predispositions. But then the soul, when the person dies, it ascends back through the planetary spheres and it gives back each of those properties to each of the planets and then emerges sort of unencumbered by those planetary predispositions. So there's some broader metaphysical question here that I don't know if I can fully articulate properly, but it's this question of does the soul, does the chart actually indicate the soul and who the person is underneath everything that they are in this lifetime, or is that in some way hidden to some extent? And is what we're looking at just a chart of predispositions for this lifetime, but there's something else behind it that's operating it and that's making choices about what parts of the chart or what choices are going to be made through those predispositions with that sort of operative piece, that wild card factor, that unexplained variable being the soul or being whatever is operating underneath the chart and is right, sort of right. enlivening the chart or making it alive. Yeah, like the the ghost in the machine uh, situation. Yeah, the um, in the in again in the Bhakti tradition, the the basic uh, belief, as I understand it, is that the uh, the chart basically represents the material AI program that the soul is running in this particular incarnation, and its psychology, its constitution, you know, and the general field of karmic parameters. Like a bird has a certain set of parameters that it can operate its choice within a dog has one a human has one and then individual humans have very much more specified ones that the chart uh d- it distinguishes the field of activities possible parameters and it also sort of loosely defines the um the sort of artificial reality suit that you're wearing as a body and a personality and a psychology and everything like that all of which is uh chosen for you, basically um, allotted for you, if you will, based on your karma and the the deeper life of the soul, which the chart really has no way of getting to in their view. It's you. The only way of really getting to know the soul is through the um, uh, awakening of the soul within the experiences of the body, which I actually believe is very similar point that people like Valens were making and Others, when they talked about, you know, God giving, Valen saying, uh, why did God give, you know, man this knowledge so that he, you know, he may, he or she may know uh, the future so that they can basically ride out the good and the bad with a certain kind of equanimity. And I think that that, that you see that in your book, you listed those different quotes so wonderfully in one of the philosophy sections on fate and free will. And what all of the they have in common in my opinion is the idea that the soul emerges or is the life of the soul is somehow found in the the um the way that the soul experiences the material suit that it's in and, and in some ways has to differentiate itself from 
the suit that's described by the chart, whether the suit is their psychology or concrete things that are going to happen to them or, or what have you. I think that's probably mo- most prevalent view, whether you were a Stoic or a Platonist or a Vedantic philosopher that was around back then. Just from all the reading that I've done, that seems to be prevalent, even though there's obviously big variations from one school to another. It still seems as though the point was for the chart to grant you some sense of distance from the very descriptions that the chart was was uh, providing. Mm. Right. I don't. I mean, that's just spe- sort of speculation on my part, but you know, it's informed by reading all of the different uh, philosophical uh, perspectives. Yeah, I liked what you were saying, especially with the was it Bhakti Yoga or no? What was the yeah. specific philosophical school? Bak- yeah, Bhakti Yoga. Okay. Yeah, and, and just that notion of the predispositions and the person like animating a certain field of a range of meanings through the archetypal nature of astrology and of the birth chart placements. I mean, I think that's when when you start adding up all of these things, because we're taking different technical and philosophical and conceptual considerations that astrologers take into account or take for granted, but eventually it starts like narrowing down and shaping a specific philosophy eventually of what astrology is and how it operates or how astrologers practice it just naturally or what what they take for granted and it starts narrowing it down into a specific like range of of things um and i think we're getting there i don't think we're going to be able to fully articulate that in, in summary today but <laughs> we won't solve the fate free will situation right we're working on it though perhaps by the end of the month we will have settled that <laughs> that two or three thousand year old debate um all right well I think we we've just about covered anything everything. I mean, I think the final thing we already mentioned variables. Variables was going to be my final point, which is just that there's something in reality there's so many operative variables that the astrologer can't take them all into account, but that doesn't mean again that they're not there. And even if the astrologer is focusing on the overall like, you know, sand castle of the person's life, that doesn't mean that there's not just like innumerable grains of sand that are creating the overall structure that you're looking at, as well as other points about actually conversing with the person in order to understand how they that that's what modern and I often wonder, because we don't know what ancient astrological consultations were like. Um, we assume that most of them were probably done verbally like they are today, but modern astrology has grown into this where the consultation is most commonly a dialogue where the person, the astrologer is making statements about the chart and what sort of predispositions and things they would expect in terms of the range of archetypal dynamics that would manifest or possibilities. And then they're getting feedback from the client so that it becomes like this loop um, where it gets stronger and stronger and more specific. And you're able to do more and more and say more and more and go deeper based on the feedback you're getting from the client and like statement feedback, statement feedback that helps you to specify things once you understand the context more. And it seems like somehow that's what's coming through the most when it comes to the twins issue is the importance of context in providing this crucial missing factor that the astrological chart does not give you. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is that this these kinds of problems um, actually help us dig in deeper. Um, one of my teachers says, uh, your doubts are really important because they help you. They're like a triangulation program that helps you sort of zero in on the truth. And I, I think that uh, 
a lot of astrology as you were just describing the process of reading and honing the descriptive powers in the chart and in the session creating a unique astrological experience in a reading it's a kind of triangulation process and often it's the details of the conversation that that spring into the air somehow and then and then everything starts lighting up and becoming seen whereas five minutes before you yourself as the astrologer and you're not even dealing with a twin issue just a normal natal chart client and you're looking at it going you know everything feels a little generic you know and so the, the issue of something feeling or being generic in astrology is actually present i understand what you were saying it's actually present in in every reading in a sense you have to triangulate in and look for some specific details that may spring the larger picture to life and make very unique sense of what you're looking at. Yeah, I love that. That's a great phrase, triangulation process, because that's exactly what's happening. And astrologers are using it like a cheat sheet in order to skip the fact that they can't take into account all the variables, but instead sometimes they're getting the outcome and then they're looking back at the chart to figure out where that's showing up in the chart. And then they're using that in order to process and help enhance knowing what their interpretation the interpretive route that they should go down in terms of understanding how that person has manifested certain placements in their chart so far and that creates a better puts them in a better position for then making doing things like making predictions or making other statements about the life because something like for example like a like the saturn return or if you're you're interpreting a saturn cycle which is like a 30 year cycle if you can see every seven years what major turning points have occurred in the person's life during different phases of the Saturn cycle, then you can make a pretty good statement about what will happen the next time Saturn hits a crucial phase in that cycle um, by having sort of knowing the tra trajectory that the person is on. So knowing right. the, the trajectory that the person is on and having that context is cr a crucial factor in astrology, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a very important part of practice that must be taken into account and is not necessarily a shortcoming, but instead is sort of like a, a feature, a facet of the entire subject as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well said. All right. Well, I think then that's a good stopping point for for this episode. So thanks a lot for for doing this with me today. This This has been awesome. Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, um, where can people find out more information about your work? What are you working on right now? Anything we should know about? Thanks. Yeah. Um, Nightlightastrology.com. Um, you can find my, I write daily horoscopes. I've got a uh, YouTube uh, video blog. And so I do some written and, and video content. I write monthly sun sign horoscopes at astrograph.com. And I teach classes and um, see clients and stuff like that. So you can find me on Facebook at Adam Ellenboss or um, nightlightastrology.com. I think probably what I have going on right now is I'm I'm sort of um, I'm in the process of really trying to develop my YouTube channel because I really want to reach out to I've been mostly written content for a long time and I've been really trying to reach out because I think the YouTube audience is really rich with people whose first, uh, they might be more interested in hearing or watching something. And when I look at, dude, I know you feel the same way because you've got a YouTube channel. When I look at some of the YouTube astrologers who have like zillions of followers, uh, I'm, I'm sometimes very encouraged because <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, um, you know, I, I may know more than some of the 15 year old girls out there with, you know, 500,000 people um, following them. Not all of them. Some of them are really good. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't be too quick to jump to, into that because some of them could could take you down with some of the sort of zodiacal descriptions I've seen have been pretty good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, no, there are, there are some good astrologers out there. I just kind of like an untapped audience that I realized and I was like, and I think there needs to be better quality. I'm, I won't be shy and say that I think there needs to be better quality astrology in more popular um, places where like lots of people are flocking to. And I honestly, I feel like a lot of my favorite, um, some of the most world's most renowned astrologers, you don't really see them making public content a lot on YouTube. So not that I'm one of those, but um, certainly as I grow in my work, I'm, I'm trying to a- appeal more to, uh, you know, bring, and especially Hellenistic astrology and traditional astrology and trying to bring some of that up to date a little bit or something in a in a popular context. So that's kind of what I've been working on. Awesome. Yeah. So people can find you on YouTube by searching for your name for your channel, right? So doing a search for Adam Ellenboss. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, I love some of the videos you've been putting out. You've been doing a lot of live stream stuff. So people should definitely check that out as it's a great uh, place for new content on astrology on YouTube. And I'm excited about the way you're growing your channel. Thanks. Yeah. And I should say, just so I don't sound like too much of a jerk, I have two daughters now. And if they're 15 and doing YouTube channels about astrology, I'll be thrilled, especially if they get a lot of followers, So regardless of where they're at. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know you were just joking earlier. Um, uh, yeah. All right. And uh, also people should check out my YouTube channel at, I think it's youtube.com slash the astrology school. And uh, I also teach an online course on ancient Hellenistic astrology, which you can find at the astrologyschool.com. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today, Adam. And thanks everyone for listening uh, to this entire episode. If you made it all the way through, congratulations. Let us know what you think in the comments. Um, this is probably a research project somebody should take up. If anybody has any interesting observations or anecdotes about twins or charts you've seen or other things like that, please let us know in the comments section below, and maybe we can start building some sort of larger database or research project for for address, addressing this issue as a community. Uh, I think that would be really cool. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, Chris. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.